Well, most Wednesday nights around six o'clock, Paige, Rob Morang, and Ben Connors, and Justin Arsenault and I meet and we study in what's called a ministry cohort. And our current area of learning is preaching. In one of our textbooks, a classic on the subject, rightly titled Biblical Preaching, written by the late Haddon Robinson, we read recently that people need to be reminded as much as they need to be informed. Indeed, one person has summed up the point in process of a sermon this way. Tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them what you're telling them. Then tell them what you told them. So in light of this counsel, and as we draw this series of messages on the book of Exodus to a close today, we're going to take a little trip down memory lane. We began this series nine months ago. This has been the longest series that we have tackled to date as a church. This has been the biggest book of the Bible that we have worked through together in this way. And so I thought it might be helpful to summarize some of the ground that we have covered. I know I can't really remember what happened last week, let alone what happened nine months ago. So some of this may actually be a revelation to you this morning. When we started, it's probably likely that a lot of us didn't really understand what the book of Exodus was all about. We may have equated it with the idea of a dramatic uh, exit of the Israelites from Egypt. But as we have made our way through it, and now that we have studied it for three quarters of a year, I hope that we are aware Exodus is about much more than that single dramatic event. That in fact, it is uh, rich with biblical themes and deep and good theology that teaches us about God, and that teaches us a bit about ourselves. But what really have we learned? Well, it was written a long time ago, but hopefully we've been able to see this book of Exodus as relevant, and to see that Exodus is a book about the Christian life. Phil Riken is a commentator and author uh, that I have come to learn a great deal from and appreciate his scholarship through this study. And he wrote, since the Exodus is a story of deliverance from bondage through the work of a Savior, it's the story of, a, of the Christian life. Like the Israelites, although we were once slaves to sin, now we have been set free from sin. As we trace our spiritual journey, we discover that we need exactly what the Israelites needed. We need a liberator, a God to save us from slavery and destroy our enemies. We need a provider, a God to feed us bread from heaven and water from the rock. We need a lawgiver, a God to command us how to love and serve him. And we need a friend of God, a God to stay with us day and night forever. Exodus is a book about the Christian life. Exodus is a book about the glory of God. The word glory appears 13 times in the book, describing what God is doing. Everything God does in this book, he does for his glory. Now, if you and I were to have as the motivation for our actions our own glory, if everything that we did was so that it would call attention to ourselves, we would rightly be considered selfish, and we might even be called narcissistic. But God is neither of these, because God, unlike us, God is perfect, and God deserves, therefore, all the glory and all the honor. Exodus is a book about the glory of God. God deserves all the glory. That's why we are commanded 
to live in such ways that bring him glory. Ways that make much of him and not so much of ourselves. We are to be much more concerned as we walk through this world with God and the things of God than we are to be with ourselves. Happiness is not found, contrary to what you're going to hear regularly and continuously, happiness is not found in self-fulfillment, self-actualization. Happiness is found in seeking fulfillment in God. Exodus is a book about deliverance and freedom. It opens with the Israelites in Egypt, and in Egypt, in bondage to Pharaoh, they are treated ruthlessly, harshly. They are literally slaving away. Every day, they have to work and make bricks in order to build cities and storehouses to hold the excesses of their pagan taskmasters while they themselves live in poverty and in lack. Exodus ends, though, with those same people having escaped the pagan taskmasters, free to serve the true king with a new building project, putting their skills to good use, advancing the kingdom of God by building a tabernacle for him. That transition of status and ownership and effort that we see in Israel ought to at least challenge us a little bit to ask who am I serving? Who do I belong to? Who's getting the lion's share of my energy, of my resources, of my talents? Whose kingdom am I applying myself to? Whose kingdom am I exerting myself for? In fact, what king am I devoting myself to? Exodus is a book about service. God told Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Remember why? Exodus 8, 1. That they may serve me. Let them go so they can serve me. The word service that's used to describe the slave labor is the same word used to describe how these Jewish people are going to worship God when they're delivered. God, for his own glory, is going to redeem a people for himself, and they're going to actually move from hard service for the pagan leader to hard service for the living God. No matter what you do in this world, you're going to be working. The question is, is that work worthwhile, and who's that work for? It's not always going to be easy. In fact, we can guarantee, even as Christians, that portions of it are going to be hard. We sometimes... We sometimes have it, uh, uh, an illusion, maybe even teach a deceitful thing, that just, just come to Jesus and everything's going to be all rosy. Just come to the Lord, it'll all be smooth. And some people actually do preach that and teach that, but the Bible doesn't. Hard service is hard service, and life is full of hard service, and what, however you work, you're going to work in some sort of hard service. But God is saying the way to make the most of it is to apply yourself in this service to me. So Exodus here highlights something that we ought to have straight in our heads. It, it talks about both our liberty as believers, but also our responsibility. That the, that the Israelites weren't delivered from Egypt in order to wander and, off and be the best versions of themselves that they could be. And neither today is anyone delivered from sin or from Satan in order to live for themselves. 
2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15, the Apostle Paul wrote this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus died that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. In Christ, we are set free from one master in order to faithfully serve another. Exodus reminds us repeatedly that mankind was never meant to be free in the sense of casting away uh, all authority or constraints or expectations that anyone might impose upon us. In fact, we were created by God to live under his sovereign rule. So Exodus is just a story about changing masters, changing sides. It's about God's people learning that liberation comes from submission to him. And that's probably, those are probably two words that you never expect to hear in the same sentence, right? That liberation actually comes from submission to God. The title of the series is the major thrust of the entire book of Exodus. Something worth contemplating long after this series is over. You may be tired of hearing it now, but it is absolutely true, and I hope it sticks with you for the rest of your life, that we who are saved are saved for God's That's why we're here. That's what our job is. That's what it's all about. It is God's glory. So, to bring this down to, to everyday living, can you point to something that you're up to in this life that is doing that very thing? Can you, can you identify something or some things in, in your life that you are doing for God's glory? And I don't mean just things that you think God would approve of or nice things or things that look good. I want to remind you that the Pharisees did those sorts of things. They prayed in public. They fasted so everybody would know it. They made sure they were to synagogue on time. They, they would not break the Sabbath rules themselves, though they might hire somebody to do it for them. But they did everything that looked right and looked good. And what did Jesus have to say to them? Nothing very kind or nice about their religiosity. So it's conceivable, actually, to be doing good things or things that look good, but not doing them for God's glory. Pharisees were doing those things for themselves. It's a trap, isn't it? We can fall into it. What are you doing, truly, for God's glory? Are you parenting for God's glory? Are you working for God's glory? Are you serving in the church for God's glory? Are you being the best spouse that you can possibly be for God's glory? Are you studying to show yourself approved for God's glory? Are you being a kind neighbor for God's glory? Are you letting your light shine before men in such a way that they can see your good works and glorify your father. Exodus is a book about serving God with the lives that we have been given 
and giving him glory in our service. Now, Exodus is a book about history. I said that as we began right away. I know some of, some of you are turned off by that idea. Oh, no, not a history book. Some of you don't like history. Some of you haven't done well in history. You don't intend to do well in history. You think history is irrelevant. Some history may be. But I just want to say this. Even though it's history, it doesn't mean it's irrelevant. I trust it has not been hard for you as we've made our way through this series. You see in yourself from time to time some of the thoughts, some of the attitudes, and even some of the actions of the Israelite people in you. I used to think the Israelites were the stupidest people ever. But read about them and say, how can they be so dumb? How can they be so dull? How can they be so stubborn? How can they be so blind? Until God, you know, graciously, perhaps with wisdom or years, I don't know, maybe he just wears you down. Helps you to see yourself in the scriptures. I haven't always been the most attentive fellow. I haven't always been the most astute when it comes to what God is up to. I have, in fact, at times simply rebelled against what I know he wanted me to do. In fact, I'm right here with those people. So it's historical, but it doesn't mean it's irrelevant. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians 10. He's saying, after, after recounting some of the less than endearing episodes uh, of the Israelites, he says, uh, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. In other words, it is God's intention to use what we read in Exodus as, uh, to instruct us, to be of benefit to us. That in some ways, God has made an example of Israel, so he doesn't have to make an example of you. In other words, you don't have to learn every lesson in life the hard way. You don't. You can learn from some of the mistakes that people have made. And that's one of the great values of the book of Exodus. It teaches us in some ways how not to be. Exodus is a book about God's faithfulness. Over and over we see Exodus uh, promising, uh, God promising things in Exodus and then delivering. That his promises are sure and true. That he can be counted on. That he keeps his word. That he is a God, we would say, uh, of, of a covenant. That he keeps his end of the bargain. And he's mighty and he's able, right? They are delivered by the mighty arm of God. He makes a remnant into a great nation. He takes people who are weak. He covers them completely with his strength. A any plans that are crafted against his people, he thwarts. The people who rise against God cannot stand. Pharaoh's army is soundly, thoroughly defeated. No match for God. The psalmist tells us that those who would trust in chariots and horses will be disappointed. They will find their faith misappropriated. Whenever you or I begin to trust or put our hope in and our security in anything other than Almighty God, you know we're bound to be disappointed. Nothing else comes through the way that God does. No one else comes through the way that God can. He will deliver his people. It's what he said he was going to do. He will make their souls live. He will feed them with bread from heaven. It's what he did. He keeps his covenant. He promised to Abraham that he would make him a nation out of his descendants. And in Genesis, he birthed that nation. 
And in Exodus, we see despite all odds, that nation begins to grow because God is faithful, because He keeps His covenant. He keeps His covenant even when His people stumble, even when His people grumble, even when His people sin. And they do. So Exodus is a book about rescue, and it's a book about salvation. It not only depicts the rescue and salvation of Israel, it looks forward to the rescue and salvation to be found in Jesus. Many of the Old Testament uh, uses of words to describe the Exodus, words like ransom and redemption and deliverance, are the very words the New Testament uses to describe the work of Christ on the cross. And so Exodus is referred to by some as the gospel of the Old Testament. In it, God's people are redeemed from slavery and death through the blood of sacrifice. That is the blueprint of salvation. It hints at what is to come. And every human understands this, I think, at least at some level. The scripture teaches that we are all by nature slaves to sin. Colossians 1.13 says that by the mercy of God, the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Once slaves to sin, now delivered from the domain of sin. Transferred to the kingdom of Christ. The Israelite crossing of the Red Sea symbolizes dramatically the necessity of leaving the old life behind if one wishes to have the new. And that's so simple. If you want a new life, you have to leave the old. If you want a new life, You've got to leave the old life behind. The scripture calls that repentance. It's, it's a turning. This is what Jesus preached. His first sermon, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. So turn around from the old and come the new. Exodus pictures an even more symbolic escape uh, than the Red Sea of leaving the old and coming through to the new in the Passover Lamb, the, the, the blood of the Passover lamb that, that saves the ones whose doorposts it is spread upon just as the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, saves everyone to whom by faith it is applied. The Apostle Paul couldn't have been more clear for us. He says emphatically, Christ is our Passover lamb. This is how to escape the consequences of sin and death. It is to come under the blood of the Lamb. It's to come under the blood of Jesus. This prompts one commentator to say, Exodus, that is not just a story of salvation, but the story of salvation. Israel's deliverance from Egypt anticipated the salvation accomplished once and for all in Christ Jesus. And therefore, Exodus is a book about good news. It is a book about good news that anticipates the best news. Now, scholars and theologians have had a long time to figure out the book of Exodus, and we are beneficiaries of all that hard work over the years. And as I mentioned at the outset of this series, most scholars agree that this book could be split into three sections or three uh, three divisions. And, and I like, of all that I have read, I particularly like the divisions of Exodus that are proposed by pastor and author David Helm. In his breakdown, chapters 1 to 15 are about the God who saves. 
He triumphs gloriously. The horse and the rider are thrown into the sea. He saves his people. Chapters 16 to 33 reveal a God who speaks. And he has a lot to say. And we covered a lot of what he had to say. Here in these chapters, we read about God's laws. We read about his expectations. And although we covered quite a bit, I do want to tell you we left a lot. It may not feel that way, but we did. In fact, we left the Ten Commandments for another series, Lord willing. God tarries, we're going to get back to those. But chapters 16 and 33 uh, are given to tell God's people not only who he is, but how they are to behave. God speaks. And then chapters 34 to 40, we find a God who settles. That is a God who is present with his people. So we have in Exodus the God who saves, the God who speaks, the God who settles. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with a veil. And you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstands and set up its lamps. So put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it in all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin at its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water. And put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priest. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged 
the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. And they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. And the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because a cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. And fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. So once again in our study of Exodus, we have read a narrative, long on important and significant and sometimes symbolic details. Frankly, it's the kind of passage that a lot of people would pick up and read and say, well, that doesn't make any sense to me, and... That's kind of how I understand the Bible. It's just full of a lot of stuff that doesn't make any sense. It does take some work to dig down into those details and understand why they are the way they are and where they are and all those sorts of things. But I just want to suggest to you a different takeaway. If I were to ask you, what, what does Exodus 40 mean to you? How do you understand it? I want to suggest a simple but far-reaching summary of this chapter and actually of this book and actually of the entire Bible, and that is this. Our takeaway should be this. It is God's desire to dwell with man. It is God's desire to dwell with man. Not to exist with us in the same space, okay? The scripture teaches the doctrine of omnipresence, that God is everywhere at all times. The psalmist asks, where can I go? Where can I flee from your spirit? The answer is nowhere, because God is always with us in that sense, everywhere at all times. But his desire, his intent, is to live with us. His desire is to be in relationship, to live in relationship with us. That is why he made us. That is what we're here for, to live with him, to delight in him, and to be a delight to him. But when sin entered the human race, the disobedience of Adam and Eve, the pure and intimate relationship between God and man was severed. God cannot delight in us when we are willfully disobedient. And our sin separates us from him. And that is our human condition. Like Israel in slavery to Pharaoh, all of us are slaves to sin. All of us, slaves 
to sin, that doesn't change the fact that God still desires to dwell with you. Here in Exodus, in the wilderness, we have a new creation of sorts, a new beginning. God wants to make his people a holy nation. He wants to make them a kingdom of priests. But how on earth, how can a godly, a, a, a holy God dwell with an unholy people? Remember, Exodus is a book that in the original language begins with the word and. Not in your translation, but in the original it begins with the word and. In other words, Exodus is a continuation of Genesis. And you know what comes after Exodus, right? Genesis, Exodus. Yeah, the book you all try to avoid. Leviticus, right. But how does Leviticus begin? If we begin to see the story of Scripture and how this is put together, how does Leviticus begin? Leviticus, Leviticus begins with the Lord. The Lord who, who we read lives or dwells in unapproachable light, calling out of the tent of meeting and telling Moses that he might be approached. How will he be approached? According to Leviticus, he will be approached through sacrifice. God will dwell with Israel in the middle of the camp and the people will have access to him as their sins are atoned for through blood sacrifice. Now this system that is being set up for the Israelites is also something, again, I don't want to ruin the whole Bible for you, but it's something that the people are going to rebel against and they're going to disobey. And actually the glory of the Lord that we're reading about is going to depart from the temple. You read Ezekiel chapter 10. They're not even going to be faithful to what God is doing here in the moment. Don't let that distract you or deter you from capturing this in your mind. None of this changes the fact that God still desires to dwell with man. And when the fullness of time had come, Apostle Paul wrote in the fourth chapter of Galatians, God sent forth. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as John puts this in language that we're a little more familiar with now that we've come all the way through the book of Exodus. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I've referenced this earlier in the series, that word dwelt among could be, could be translated literally tabernacled. That Jesus came to earth and tabernacled among us. That Jesus came to earth, the Son of God came to earth and pitched his tent. John further says that we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. In other words, just as in Exodus chapter 40, the birth of Jesus into the world is again the glory of God come down. What end did Jesus come? Why did he come? Did he just show up to tell us all of what we're doing wrong? How we've messed it up. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world through him might be saved. God sent his son, Jesus, to purchase those who are already condemned. We're all already condemned because of our inability to keep the law. None of us is perfect. In fact, at some point we stop trying. 
Sometimes we actually willfully disobey what we know God wants us to do. But Jesus didn't come here to condemn us for that. He came here to save those, to purchase those who are already condemned because of sin. And he didn't send Jesus into the world to set up another system of sacrifice for atonement. And him into the world to be a sacrifice and atonement. That's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus is all about. That's what he did. He came to earth to bear the sins of the world on the Roman cross at Calvary. He was killed there. He was buried. And in three days, as proof of that his sacrifice was sufficient, as proof that it was acceptable to God, Jesus was raised from the tomb to everlasting life and to a dwelling with God that will never, ever be broken, making it possible for all who would put their faith in him to have that same eternal relationship with God. The question facing every human since that time, have you said yes or no? the one who brings peace on earth and goodwill to men. Have you said yes or no? Him. The glory of God come down in the wilderness foreshadows the even greater condescension of God to this earth in the person of his son, Jesus. But there is more still and good reason for any who are undecided about Jesus to decide. For as the hymn writer has put it, there is coming a day when the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. There is coming a day when the glory of God will come down again. This time for the last time, the glory of God comes down. The desire of God will be fully realized, eternally realized. Nothing will prevent this from happening. Revelation 21 speaks of a new heaven and a new earth. And verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And so we understand, right, the filling of the tabernacle with the glory of God in Exodus 40 is an anticipation and a promise of a great day pledged, a day when, as the prophet Habakkuk prophesied, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. I want to finish up this morning with a few words from Tim Chester in his commentary, Exodus for You. He says, God has rescued his people from slavery and death so they can enjoy his presence and see his glory. Everything so far has been leading up to this moment. Of all the blessings God gives, and there are many, this is the greatest. God himself in his glory. And this is the promise given to us in the gospel of the tabernacle. One day, in a new creation, we will eternally enjoy God in his glory. The tabernacle was a taste of God's glory. The new creation will be its fulfillment. In the end, 
And at the end, what we get from God is God. Glory God. Greatest gift of all to us. Have you received that gift? Will you receive it? Let's stand in conclusion this morning and sing number 813 if you're looking in a hymnal. It just might be a tune that some of you are familiar with. 813.